0: You're listening to the Sparrows and Wildflowers podcast. Stories of faith, love, life, loss, and eternity.
1: Welcome to episode 14 of Sparrows and Wildflowers. Just want to firstly say thank you to everyone for listening to this podcast and especially thank you to those who like the posts on Facebook, who've rated and reviewed on iTunes, favorited and followed on SoundCloud. All that is so appreciated. And I'd love for this podcast to reach as many people as possible because I think there are some incredible stories and some incredible truths here that um, would be really exciting to share. So for today's episode, I've interviewed Ken Isco. Ken has lived so far an incredibly full life. He grew up on a dairy farm as the oldest of several kids. He ended up becoming an electrical engineer but found himself at a bit of a crossroads choosing between his dream job and going to Bible college. Over the past several decades, Ken and his wife have helped to start many churches around Australia and also over in the Middle East and Papua New Guinea as well. We speak about Ken's perspective on biblical studies and on theology and pastoral training and we also hear about his perspective on overseas Christian missionary work. So I really hope you enjoy listening to Ken's full, inspiring and crazy journey so far. Here's my conversation with Ken Isco.
0: Well, I come from a dairy farm in northeast Victoria, the eldest of uh, five kids, and uh, I loved that country feel growing up. I kind of wish my own kids could have the same experience, but uh, that was wonderful and I loved that part of the country.
1: Yeah, whereabouts was that? Um,
0: There's a town called Wangaratta, which is on the main road from Sydney down to Melbourne, and just off to the east a little is a little hamlet called Tarawingi. Which has got one pub and one church, and it used to have one school that I went to. It doesn't even have the school now.
1: Oh wow! And so was farming a big part of your upbringing?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Um, we had we were mainly dairy, but we had a bit of everything. My dad was quite creative. We had sheep and pigs and crops, and and so and all of the kids. I was there were three boys and two girls, and we all hopped in and helped milk the cows, drive the tractor, do all that sort of stuff. Wow. So it was very. I I look back on it with nostalgia, but all of the farming in that area is gone now. It's not economic, so.
1: Right. That's sad.
0: It is. It's all the big the big conglomerates now. So.
1: Yeah.
0: But it was great living on a farm. You know, as I as I've gotten older, i I'm, I'm probably a little bit ADD or something. I just jump from one thing to the next. But on a farm, you've got you know. 140 or 240 or whatever acres, and you just, there's plenty of places to spend your energy without driving your parents nuts. So.
1: <laughs> I bet they appreciated that with five kids.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, and, and we all had to hop in and help. The farm could not have run without the labour, I guess, that, that the kids put in between collecting eggs from the chooks and driving the tractor and feeding out bales of hay to the cows and yeah. and all that kind of stuff that you did. and. and Without hardly thinking about it, really, it was just normal life, you know.
1: And how did you find being the oldest of five?
0: That's a hard question. I mean, I know the theoretical stuff now about first child and all of that, but I guess I was the I was the one who tended to get the new clothes. That's probably the main <laughs> the main benefit.
1: Yes, and you've got quite a unique surname, Isco. Is that? The correct pronunciation? That is,
0: Isco rhymes with Disco. It's
1: <laughs> a good way to remember. What's the heritage of this surname? Well,
0: it's interesting in that uh, my great-great-grandfather came from Denmark in, uh, in 1856 to the uh, Bendigo Goldfields. Mm-hmm. But en route, he uh, was met by a merchant and he got employed and so he got a job working for a merchant. He probably ended up financially better off than going and digging gold. I don't know. Mm. Um, but he eventually bought a farm in Castlemaine in Victoria and settled there. And interestingly, he, uh, he was one of three brothers who all came out together for the gold fields. Um, one of them was called back home to Denmark because the old man his father, uh, was ill or had died. And so this guy had to go back and take care of the family blacksmith business. And the third son decided he didn't like Australia and he didn't want to go back to Denmark. So he went to the US and there's a, a branch of the family there somewhere I think around Minnesota or somewhere that we really, we don't know anything about. But we had no contact with our family all the years growing up. I was just this country kid with a weird-sounding name <laughs> when everybody else was Smith and Nolan and so on.
1: Is that because people changed their names or they just had English heritage, do you
0: think? Uh, the where we were was mainly uh, yeah English heritage, I guess. A little further east up in Myrtleford was a tobacco and hop area and there was lots of Italians there. So we began to meet and experience international kids, mainly post-World War II, immigrants, Italians and Germans uh, in high school, began to sort of in- encounter them. But it wasn't until about 25 years ago, I guess, that an aunt in the family started reaching out you know it was a big thing to find your heritage a while ago mm. so she located the Iscos back in Denmark and communication started and since then there's visits and Christmas presents exchanged and Christmas cards and so it's all it's all lovely to know our Danish relatives now mm. um, in fact I've got an email name which is my name it's Ken at iskov.com and there's a Danish IT relative who gives anyone in the world, if you have your last name is Isco, he'll give you an email address. Really? So that's a pretty good deal. But <laughs> I discovered a little while ago, I, I was, you know, with the internet, I just started Googling the name and it started popping up in Russia. And since then, I've discovered there's a lot of the name in Russia. Um, and there was apparently some sort of a, uh, a pogrom against Jews in Russia in the sixteenth century, who and some of them had this same name, mm. and they they were pushed out to Scandinavia. So it may well be that going way back, my ancestors were Jewish, who in Scandinavia became Lutherans or something. Wow! So I'd love to find out more. My brother discovered on the internet that if you Google the Israeli white pages, there's pages and pages of this same surname. So there's got to be a jewish connection in there somewhere
1: wow so interesting yeah cool and you mentioned the local school and and the high school as well and ha- did you enjoy your experience of school
0: yeah school was interesting because it was a little country school with about 20 kids oh. and one teacher who taught all six grades grouping them in into pairs so grades one and two three and four five and six and he teach a lesson to the one and twos and assign some work to them and then go and do the next level and then the next level and go back and do it all again. Wow. And I, I really don't know how those guys did it. I really admire the, the skill level they had to manage, you know, 20 or so unruly kids of <laughs> widely varying ages from sort of five through to 13, mm. but somehow they did it. And then I went on to technical school in those days in Victoria. Secondary education was streamed and you could go to the technical side, which tended to be the trade people and so on, or to the high school if you were probably going on to university. And, um, I guess just coming from a farm, it was a natural gravitation of the technical side of things. Mm. And so I went on through there and did reasonably well so that I was able to continue on to engineering and then eventually had to go down to Melbourne for the last year or two to finish that off as a, to be trained as an engineer.
2: Right.
0: So uh, that was was interesting. But I, looking back, I missed out. I lamented that uh, I had virtually no none of the the arts subjects, so no history, no geography, right. just maths and science and woodwork and stuff like that. Yeah. So but along the way, subsequently, I've been very interested in sort of pursuing those areas.
1: Yeah. And in your childhood, was God or religion or faith at all a part of your world?
0: In a sort of a way. um, My parents obviously wanted us to have a religious or a Christian upbringing, so they sent us to Sunday school, though they themselves at that point didn't go to church. Um, So initially they sent us along to the local Anglican church, which my brother and I got kicked out of for fighting apparently when we were about seven. <laughs> so that was the end of that. And then we went to the local, uh, when I say local, the, in, in the big town Wangaratta where my high school was. Um, we went to the Methodist church and they had a great youth group. And and um, there was a Methodist youth camp run up in the, the hills and the foothills of the uh, Great Dividing Range. And that's where I really first heard and understood about Jesus. I mean, I've been going to Sunday school for yonks years, but I went to this camp mainly because there's a girl in the youth group who I thought was pretty cool and I heard she was going, so I thought, I'm going. <laughs> um, but, and I'm sure I must have heard it along the way that, that Jesus loves me and that he gave his life for me and, and desires me to come into a relationship with him, but somehow the penny hadn't dropped and it was at the the youth camp i first heard the the invitation and the challenge to make a personal choice which not at that camp but subsequently i did but then it's really interesting looking back because i i believe god moves in people's lives in in all sorts of different ways over long extended periods of time mm. and i can clearly remember the first sort of god moment when i was a kid about six or seven, I guess. And I was lying in my bedroom window one hot summer's night, uh, a moon, moonless night. It was just bright stars burning in the sky. I was lying in my bed looking out and I guess in school we must have learned um, how big the universe is, you know, the immensity of space and light years. And I'm there thinking that universe, those stars are so far away. And yet God made them, so God must be bigger than all of that. And interestingly, you sort of think, well, that that sort of emphasises God's distance and power and majesty. But what it made me feel was really secure. I felt like the universe is a safe place. It's an okay place to be. And so I think that put in me kind of a, a positive spirit. I, I don't. I tend not to see the negative things. I tend to see the positive, and so maybe that was it. Wow. And then, as so I kind of was thinking about this journey, then when I was about eleven or twelve, for some unknown reason, a local Methodist minister would come and pick me up on Sundays in his car. Because in those days, uh, the Methodist church had little outposts everywhere, so they had the main morning service in the town, and then the minister would go up these little country. Churches the size of a couple of bedrooms with 10 or 12 people. And he'd take me to give the children's talk to, like, three kids who might be there. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, why did he do that? You know, what did he see? I, I didn't I didn't come to a personal commitment to Christ until I was about 17. So, so there was that. And then when, after I'd left home to go to college some years later, my mum cleaning out cupboards and wardrobes and she presented with this big cardboard box full of old bits and pieces of mine, school books and report cards and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And among it, I was staggered to find there was a little New Testament. And apparently she had seen an advertisement in the newspaper and sent away for one for each of her kids and given them to us when we were about 12 or 13. And in the back, there was a fill in the blanks page where you could put your name and the date and and sign a little pledge that said, this day I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, sign Ken Isco.
2: Yeah.
0: Now, I didn't remember doing that. <laughs> and at one level, it wasn't a spiritually significant moment. I would say that came later. And yet it must have been yeah. a spiritually significant moment. And it was choosing to go in a particular direction, I mm. guess, as a child. So there's a, there's a long journey. Most, most people have done a little bit of um, developmental psychology work in terms of spiritual development. And most people, if you dig, even if they're not in the least Christian or religious, actually have moments of the inexplainable or of something greater than themselves. Mm. So, so those things lead somewhere if you're open to them, I guess.
1: Yeah. And I was interested you said you, I guess the gospel the story of Jesus made sense to you for the first time on that camp mm-hmm. but you didn't decide to accept it until a little bit later what was that little journey
0: well i was 16 i guess and lots of hormones and you know young guys thinking i you know i i want to live life a bit i want to explore the wild oats or whatever Um, and so I kind of had this view of myself that that I believed that this was all true, that I was hearing about Christ, that he truly lived and he died he did so for the whole world agreed with all of that but I was not going to enter the door just yet, I was going to be like God's secret agent on the outside and I'd tell other people you should do that, that'd (laughs) be good but I'm I'm not going to do it just yet. Right. A little bit like Saint Augustine I guess his famous prayer of Lord, save me, but not just yet. So, <laughs> Lord, No, Lord, make me holy, but not just yet. Right. Yeah, so.
1: <laughs> so you mentioned that you ended up doing engineering. Yes. So you enjoyed that. But you I stupid.
0: did. I loved it. I became an electrical engineer. Mm. And uh, it was funny because I originally I wanted to be a mechanic and work on cars because I loved doing it. Oh,
2: yeah. And
0: my, my dear old mother, who was quite quirky in some ways, she said, no, you don't want to do that. By the time you grow up, we won't have cars. We'll all be driving around in flying saucers.
1: So, <laughs> she, she was of, she semi-serious?
0: Um, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I ended up becoming uh, an electrical engineer and I worked for the Electricity Commission in Victoria for about three years after I graduated. Mm-hmm. And I loved that. My first job was working on uh, the big steel electricity towers you see leaping around the countryside, which Mm. most people think are environmentally terrible and ugly, I think they're things of beauty. But um, so I was working on those and then as part of my training, I was sent to various other places to uh, the Hazelwood Power Station for six months and to uh, a drawing office, design office, which I hated for a while, and a couple of other locations. Um, And then at the end of that, you got to choose where you were really interested and where you'd like to go back to. I wanted to go back and work with the uh, the, the power lines people because well, that was pure boys' own stuff. I was given a four-wheel drive, go out in the bush all week and drive around these tracks and supervise the building of these towers. It was great stuff. And to my own and everyone else's surprise, I got reappointed back to that division because people said, you, you'll never get that, forget about it. But it was right around that time when God was beginning to speak to me about getting some education, some training in, in Christian things, mm-hmm. not to become a pastor necessarily, just to understand more. Mm. And so I applied and was accepted into Bible college and I got my acceptance letter pretty much a few weeks after I'd got my acceptance letter for my dream job. Oh. And I had to go, okay, okay. so all right, this, this is bit of a sacrifice here.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, but I knew what I wanted to do, and I, I, so I resigned. Wow. But the funny thing was, after I was in Bible College, Melbourne Bible Institute, for three years, and in the second of those years, Leonie and I got married. But my experience was first year of doing any college thing that's all exciting and new, and third year, of last year's OK, because you can see the goal yeah. in sight. But the middle years, thats <laughs> kind of a big grind, isn't you know?
2: it? Yeah.
0: And I was grinding away in the middle year. And lo and behold, this um, this uh, distribution department that made the, the big steel towers called me up, found me somehow in the days before the internet and said, we've got a project on, we need somebody to manage it, could you come back and work for us again? Oh, wow. And I it was very affirming like wow somebody yeah. really wants me Yeah. and you know after being 18 months of a poverty-stricken student I was coming up with all these rationalizations of you know I could do that and i could just continue bible college part-time you know take yeah. 15 years to finish or whatever and I saw <laughs> the Lord say no just stay on course on
1: mm-hmm. on what you're
0: doing so that was that was what I chose to do but
1: so I always like to ask people, when you say you felt God talking to you what or, or speaking to you or leading you in a certain way, what does that look like for you?
0: In that instance, it was kind of a rational decision based on what I knew God was like and what God was calling me to do. Um, so it wasn't voice in the ear or anything like that. And it wasn't even something that jumped out of the Bible to me. It was just... After I sort of sat and thought about it and prayed, I thought, no, if I, mm. if I took up that offer, I'm really just running away from what I meant to be doing. And so it was a kind of a logical choice. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to
2: yeah. stick with the study, mm-hmm.
0: which then became a bit of a habit, and I kept going back for more, but that's <laughs> another story.
1: <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned you married your wife, Leonie, during that time. How yes. did you guys meet?
0: Well, uh, actually, through the Methodist youth camps up in the hills in northeastern Victoria, and I was in a sort of a social circle that included her older sister and she was just like a little kid sister, the Uh, 14-year-old who was tagging along. (laughs) And then one day she was grown up. And (laughs) um, and we we sort of became interested in each other. I still remember the magic moment when it all began where it was a bunch of us from the youth group were walking along the middle of a country road in a moonlit night. One night we had been hanging out, doing something together. And I had this sense that tonight was going to be the night for for some sort of relationship to form. And anyway, as we're walking down the road, our hands brushed and our hands clenched. <laughs> and it all began. Very and, cute. And Leone says that, um, as I was leaving, uh, I was at the window down waving goodbye from the car, and she ran over and gave me a peck on the cheek, and her Mm -hmm. older sister was a bit bit put out at this because she thought that I was being stolen, you know, out of her circle of friendships. So Leone was a nurse and she'd left the country also and was down doing her nursing training in Melbourne at the Mm -hmm. the Austin Hospital. So when she finished that after, I think it was three years of training. Um, she, kept, we, we were, she graduated from nursing in about January, we were married in February, and in March we were involved Bible in college together as a married couple. And The first year I'd lived in the, uh, the college as a single student in the men's dorms, and uh, the principal wisely said, look, for a young married couple you would be wise to, to live off campus and get yourself established and so mm. on. So we looked around for some sort of where where would we live? And we found there was a Methodist old people's home that needed a, kind of like a caretaker who'd receive rent and fix up leaking taps. And, and they were very glad to have a nurse mm. be part of that, the couple who did that because, you know, it could take care of any emergencies. So that's what we did for the next couple of years while we were studying in Bible college at Melbourne Bible Institute and looking after these elderly couples in their little self-care mm. units, which was kind of, I thought, why did somebody actually ask us to do that? This pair of 20-year-old kids <laughs> looking after all these old people. But yeah, it was a good experience.
1: Yeah, I bet. Do you have any reflections on spending years, those early years with people who are in their later years?
0: Um, no, it was it was just something to be done. And they're lovely, they're lovely people. Mm. And, um, it just gave us a roof over our heads and we did, we did have, as it turned out, a few crises where Leonie's nursing skills were needed. Yeah. But bad. for the most part, it was just administrative really.
1: Yeah. Okay. And with this study, um, so that was four years? It was three years. Three yeah. years.
0: Yeah.
1: How did you find walking out? your Personal faith journey with sort of immersing yourself in theology—is that does it make it easier or harder or different? Yeah, it's
0: it's a really good question, and I think it varies a lot for people. There's a a theologian called Helmut Tillich who wrote a book called A Little Exercise for Young Theologians Mm -hmm. because he had observed that a lot of young people get some theological training and they kind of get the swirled head and they go back to their churches or whatever and they're spouting information everywhere. long words and theological concepts and and just causing people to shake their heads in astonishment mm. and I don't I, I just I guess I loved it I loved study as I said earlier I had not had any exposure to arts and history and if you're studying theology you end up doing a lot of history and a lot of philosophy yeah and and later on anthropology and sociology as well so and I loved. Doing those things as well as digging into the Bible, so um, I guess I tried to integrate them a fair bit and just put them in a compartment. That this is study and this is my personal devotional life. I kind of let them blend together. Mm. Not everybody does that or even likes that, I guess, but it worked for me.
1: Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. And um, was it off the back of Bible College that you became missionaries?
0: No, what happened was we we were planning to go into the Methodist ministry. You can see the Methodist church figures pretty strongly in our early history Mm. to the extent that John Wesley is still my my hero of church history. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're planning to go to Queensland to theological college there. But what happened was I had an uncle who was a teacher and he was just a typical Aussie beer drinking, loud sort of a guy and he went to Billy Graham crusade in Melbourne in 69 and got profoundly converted to Christ and his whole life got turned around and he started uh, attending a church planting church and uh, it was a new denomination in Australia called the Christian Missionary Alliance and their pastor was an American guy and when he heard that we were thinking of going into Methodist ministry. He said, don't do anything until you hear from us. Next thing he's on our doorstep with this American pastor <laughs> okay. who he had met because these two little girls with American accents turned up in his primary school class and being a good teacher, he thought he'd pay a home visit out of curiosity and as a new Christian. And, uh, and he started going to this church and loving it. And so they asked us, invited us to come and do youth work with them And we thought, wow, where we were, it was quite hard to do evangelism and to to encourage people to follow Christ. Uh, There was a lot of theological cross currents going on in those days, and some people thought you shouldn't even do that. And so you had to battle all the way through.
1: So Christians were saying that you shouldn't um, share. evangelize or share your faith. Yeah, Yeah,
0: this was. Uh, some of the major denominations in those days were very strongly liberal in their theology, so evangelism and personal piety or walk with Christ were not on the radar. Um, in fact, were sometimes dismissed, rather dismissed even scornfully in some places. So you had to battle to maintain what you wanted to, to do. So we thought, wow, wouldn't it be great to go somewhere where we could just, you know, run a youth group, do just what's on our hearts and and have the leadership cheering for us and supporting us rather than undermining. So we did that and went and did a, a year of youth work uh, at this church after we graduated. Leonie went off and did her midwifery year. And I got a daytime job with a little organisation called Christian Media Australia, where my partner and my boss was an English missionary kid from China Inland Mission Missionaries. And uh, so he grew up in China, he was a graphic designer and he was kind of appalled at the poor level of communication from churches in the 60s and 70s. So he set up this little organization to uh, improve graphic communication and also improve, well, any sort of media use. So I was kind of the tech guy, worked with audio visuals and we made up one of the very first multi screen projector systems. So we had this big white screen about six or eight metres wide, a couple of metres high that we designed and built out of aluminium tube and various bits and pieces and uh, six Kodak carousel projectors. I don't know if you recall them as clunky things. You put a, a rotary carousel full of slides on top and we'd set them up on stands. We'd have a soundtrack on tape and a script and I built a lot of the equipment to control the projectors and we would be... Uh, hired by mission societies and the evangelical alliance and so on to to do the opener for big events. So I remember one night we were so proud of ourselves the Evangelical Alliance in Victoria had John Stott, who's a very well known author and theologian and mission specialist, was speaking in Melbourne and so they got us to do this opening five or ten minute segment so the tape started, the slide started flashing on and off and dissolving on the screen and my partner was operating this like a giant piano, he's just reading the script and punching buttons in time with a printed script to make it all happen but afterwards John Stott came up to us and he said gentlemen, he said I've seen quite a few presentations around the world in various places but this was one of the best, well we were <laughs> that pleased with ourselves for that, yeah. but it was it was great because it was innovative. We were doing things that had not been done before. But what that lasted for a short season, a couple of years, I guess, and we then were still feeling we wanted to train further for Christian leadership of some sort, not necessarily pastoral, but maybe. And but we decided we would do it in the Christian Missionary Alliance that we're a part of. Mm -hmm. Leonie at this stage was pregnant with twins about seven months, and we got in our two old bomb cars and drove up to Canberra with all our worldly chattels and settled ourselves into Canberra to the Alliance College of Theology. And I was able to transfer um, a bunch of my credits, so I only had to do about another year and a half to get... I'd done a diploma level and was able to graduate at a bachelor's level while we were there in Canberra. So that was a big change for us.
1: Yeah. And then you had twins there.
0: Yeah, so we had the twins while we were there. And um, and I was just working in bits and pieces as I was able to, to, to put food on the table. Um, I mean, we had some really funny experiences there. We got there in the middle of a housing shortage, and people had said to us, what you need to do is go to the Canberra Times at midnight, get the newspaper, And mark any possible houses that you think might suit or apartments. And then as soon as it's humanly decent the next morning, start calling. So that's what we did about I think about six thirty. I called this guy that's a cheap, cheap, cheap house in Kingston and uh foreign accent, he said, Come and have a look. So we did in the half light of a Canberra dawn and thought, It'll do we said, Hmm. We'll take it. And we went back and picked up our trailers and all our stuff and came around in the cold light of day, and we nearly died. It was such a dump. But a couple of our youth group had helped us drive the cars up, so we went out and bought gallons of paint. We completely painted the inside of this place. Yeah. So it was kind of halfway decent. (laughs) Um, So Canberra's full of fascinating things like that. After about six months, and after the boys, our twin sons were born, we got offered to be the caretakers of St Andrew's, Canberra, which is a big old, almost like a cathedral, a Presbyterian church, on State Circle, right next to New Parliament House. And so we got to be the caretakers of this place. And for reduced rent, I was given a key and I'd open up the church in the morning and then lock it up at night, hopefully not (laughs) locking anyone in there. So we were there in Canberra for about a year and a half.
2: Wow. All up,
0: but a lot of transition going on in the midst of that. It's kind Mm. of the story of our lives, really. Transitions.
1: Wow, and where to from there?
0: Well, we finished up and graduated in around mid-year. In fact, as I jumped ahead of the others because the college had only just begun, and because I transferred credits in, I actually graduated with the first bachelor of theology from that place. And if only the transcripts were numbered, I'd have zero zero one probably. <laughs> but the Christian missionary Alliance is wanting to plant churches. And there was an opportunity in a little country town in Western Australia called Pinjarra. And a Perth pastor had driven down every week and was running a Bible study in a home. And they'd gathered about a dozen adults and eight or nine kids. And they were saying, we'd like to have a church. And so he said, well, I I can't do that. So we were invited to be the first pastors of this little church plant as they moved into Sunday services. So um, these were the days when air flight was fearsomely expensive. So they couldn't afford to fly me over. They put me on the India Pacific. So I took three days over, had a few days looking around, three days back. And then I told Leone, I said, I think it's good and the God's in it. And bless her heart, sight unseen. We loaded everything back in the old Valiant station wagon and the two one-year-old twins in the back seat and drove across the desert to start pastoring this little church, which was a fantastic time. We we had one of the best seasons of our life there because it was just a great, happy church that grew. People came to Christ in numbers. The church could only afford to pay us two days a week. There's 12 people, so I had to get a job. Um, and the way God works things out is quite amazing sometimes. I had a laboring job when I was in Canberra on a building site laboring for an electrician because in my engineering studies I'd done all the theory that an electrician does but had no practical experience Mm. and so I'm there and I'm threading pipes and pulling wires and doing this and that and one day sitting in the lunchroom the guy I was working for said why don't you go and get your A grade electrical license while you're doing this and I said well I don't have the experience he said that's what this is. It's experience. <laughs> yeah. So I did. So I got my A-grade electrical license just for no obvious reason except that I could.
2: Mm.
0: When I got over to WA, there was an electrician who needed somebody to work for him and I needed to find some work. So for three days a week, I was able to work as an electrician for a local contractor, which was a brilliant entrance into that community, because I was in and out of people's homes oh, and right. making contact with people.
2: Yeah.
0: And uh, so the little church grew pretty rapidly, and we were all full of enthusiasm, so we started another church about 30K down the road, and I really didn't know anything, there's no great theory or strategy behind this. We just loved people and talked to them about Jesus. And, and it was actually great starting this next church, because it meant we could raise up leaders and guys could get opportunity to preach that maybe they weren't ready to preach in front of 80 people, but they could do so in front of 15 or 20. And so we got the second little church going. Um, and that was, that was quite exciting. After about four years, one church had got up to about a hundred and the other one to about 60 and the leaders of the movement somehow thought I must have been doing something right and that I should be, given some more training, so they arranged for a scholarship to go to the U.S. and do a master's degree over there, which is all very exciting. Mm. Um, I really didn't know very much about exits and transition out. And so of those two little churches, one still going to this day, but the other sadly folded because I didn't know about succession planning, Mm. and so I just left it in the hands of others who. In their great wisdom, put in an American Marine in a church that was made up of dairy farmers and it <laughs> didn't actually work very well. Even though he's a great guy and he got saved in the first church, actually. Um, but I'd do things quite differently if I was doing it again now. Yeah. But anyway, from that, we packed up. By then, we had a little daughter now. So we had the twins who were four or five and our daughter who was two, and we bundled them all into a plane. And Went off to America for three years, that turned out to be six. So.
1: Oh, wow, very interesting. So you continued your studies over there. Yeah,
0: yeah. So um, we ended up in a little place called Nyack, New York, which is on the Hudson River, uh, just above the city of New York. So like like the Blue Mountains is to Sydney, it's kind of a bedroom community. And there was what is arguably the first Bible college in America, it was there, Nyack uh, College, And they had a a graduate school, so we were there for three years, and I did a master of divinity. We only worked as a night shift nurse in a local hospital. I used to drive school buses and got a part time job in a in a uh, boiler factory as an electrician. Um, So we had to work while we were were there, even though we had scholarship for the fees and for our accommodation. and I did pretty well. I'd always been a marginal student, and I'd crashed a few of my engineering subjects because I was trying to play guitar like Bob Dylan and <laughs> wasted a fair bit of time along the way. But I was doing quite well academically and getting good grades, and um, and awards and recognition and so. On. And so the thought began to form in my mind that that I'd love to keep on going, do some more study, and. I talked with the leaders of the movement we were with and they all were affirming that this was a good idea because they were preparing us to eventually come back to Australia to teach at the college that I'd graduated from in Canberra because it needed its faculty at that stage were all uh, from overseas, Canadian or US-born, so we need to get some Aussies there. Um, So this was going to defer. Instead of going back after three years, we'd be there for another season, so we went down to Princeton, Princeton Theological Seminary, which is not a classical, uh, it's not so much an evangelical Bible-based school as a classical uh, supporter of the church, very Presbyterian, very fine uh, place. And they suggested, I was thinking of doing a Doctor of ministry, which is a hands-on practical sort of a doctorate, but they said, oh, you should really get into the PhD in Christian education if you want to be a teacher. So I did, um, we both got part-time jobs again. I was working in a computer shop and driving limousines. Wow. You've had many careers. Yes, I have. (laughs) And, um, and plugged away on this. And the American PhD is quite different from Australian one in that you actually do coursework. You do a couple of years of classes. Okay. Then you sit a whole bunch of challenge exams, uh, which were five exams each of about six hours on pretty much every topic under the sun on theology, philosophy, uh, psychology, education and practical theology. So I did, did all the coursework for a couple of years, did reasonably well, got reasonably good grades, um, sat for the exams on the advice of my advisor who said, well, okay, are you ready to do this? And then crashed. You know, I was asked into a, a meeting, and all these faculty members sitting around, they said, oh, sorry Mr Isco you haven't passed the the exam phase which um, was like a total bomb from the blue you're right. and uh so it was real i mean i just went out and told the only. i was just sitting both sitting in the car weeping like after three years of busting ourselves and you know working second jobs and so on. so we had to then take stock of what we did next i could have kind of reset the clock and kind of start it again but that was just a bridge too far mm. or convert the work i'd done into a master of uh, theology and mth mm. and head back to australia But normally you can do an mth in one year so take three years to do that right so it's a quite you know something like that's quite a wrenching thing because you think, why am i here i'm here because i think god wanted me yeah yeah how come it's turned out to be such a disaster and in hindsight too, there were some strange things happening. There was eight in my cohort, my peer group, and by the time I was number five to go, there was only three left. Right. And typically prestige universities and colleges, they don't want anybody falling out of their PhD program. That's like really bad publicity for them. Uh-huh. So what had gone wrong with this group? I do not know, mm. There's something strange I suspect happening, but be that as it may, we'll never find that out probably. So we came back to Australia.
1: Were you angry at God at all? Mm,
0: no. Just questioning. Okay. Um, yeah, just questioning like, how come all this effort? Um, and I don't know that I can even say today that I know, you know, you can make sort of offense statements like well God works everything to good which he does That's yeah. what the Bible says but um, at this point I don't particularly know except I mean a thm from Princeton is still pretty solid currency but it just wasn't what I was hoping for or expecting
2: mm. yeah
0: and then in coming back to Australia we were we're now three years later than we were expected and there wasn't actually an open position at the college so we couldn't go straight there so Oh, what else do So yeah. we were asked to take on a church, which in hindsight was quite a, a difficult and challenging church here in Sydney. Okay. And we worked with that for about six years until I was pretty much exhausted. And we thought we need to take a break, like have a homemade sabbatical. So um, I went back to engineering for, I thought, a year. It turned out to be three years but it was really good uh, working for an importing company in uh, sort of computers and touch screens and all the emerging technology. So I really found that fascinating because I still love to mess around with technology. So um, we had to then think, well, what do we do now after I'd resigned from that, that church in the early nineties? Um, and the denomination we were with were quite small and only a few churches around Sydney. So I we thought, well, can't really attend one of the others because I'll be asked to preach and I'll be put on committees, and there won't <laughs> be a won't be a break at all.
2: Yeah.
0: <clears throat> and we knew of uh, Ian Jagelman from Christian City Church, Lane Cove, through our kids' meeting in school and through pastors' fellowships, and so we said, well, let's let's start going there, which we did in ninety two, ninety three, somewhere in there. And after a little while, Anne said, can you run our weekend Bible school for us? And I said, sure. And then another year later, he said, can you come on the staff and be the pastor of Lane Cove Morning Congregation? Mm. Which we did. So that's when we entered uh, what was then called Christian City Church now, C3 Church, Mm. as pastors. And that's where we've been ever since.
1: So C3 Church is a Pentecostal movement. Yes. Have you come from a Pentecostal denomination?
0: Not directly, no. no. Um, I came from a classical inter-varsity fellowship evangelical background. Yes. Um, the Christian Missionary Alliance was a halfway house. It was birthed in the spiritual fervor of the late 19th century. A Canadian Presbyterian minister founded the CMA out of his own experiences. He was profoundly ill in his 50s of mm. heart condition and he was supernaturally healed and right. he began to Teach that Jesus is a healer, began to teach about the Holy Spirit that we need to encounter the Holy Spirit. Mm. So they're kind of a halfway house toward modern Pentecostalism in many ways. They believed in healing, they believed in the second experience of the Holy Spirit, they were passionately committed to missions and outreach. And, uh, and so I kind of was quite happily entered into. Uh, Pentecostal church and along the way while I was in the other movement in a it's a long complicated story you may not want to inquire about but <laughs> I, I received the spiritual gift of praying in another language the gift of tongues
2: mm. and
0: so I was kind of I had all the credentials now to be a full blown <laughs> Pentecostal anyway
2: Yeah.
0: and Lane Cove was an interesting church because Ian uh, himself was uh, well educated some people tend to stereotype pentecostals as being not very wise not very well educated and historically that that can be the case Um, but we we ended up with a lot of traditional church people who were hungry for more of god in their lives turning up at lane cove wanting still a good solid bible-based expository preaching sermon didn't want any sort of waffly and fanciful yeah but they also wanted the experience of the spirit and worship, and so we got this sort of um, slightly derogatory nickname, I guess, of the Thinking Man's Pentecostal Church <laughs> at Lane Cove. But backhanded it was a backhanded
1: compliment. It
0: was kind of a backhanded <laughs> compliment. But a great, a great church. And out of that church, um, and I know while I was there on the executive leadership, we birthed Carlingford C3 Church, which mm-hmm. is going strong today, with several hundred people. The ride. C three Church, which is powering on with about a thousand people, and those two churches have planted many others around around the world in Sweden, in Tokyo, Cairo, Baghdad, um, in heaps and heaps of places. Plus the number here in Australia, yeah. which is what I absolutely love. I'm passionate, and what I do now is support church planters and planting. So mm. it's a great place to be.
1: So you first. When you first went to overseas church planting, and so for people that aren't familiar, church planting is to to start a new church. Is Correct. It? Yeah. yeah. Um, was Papua New Guinea your first overseas? Church? It was.
0: I was asked to go, and uh, through a friend of uh, of Pastor Richard Green from the Ride Church, who's a friend of mine, I was asked to go and help uh, in. Uh, Port Moresby in Papua New Guinea to start a Bible college. What had happened was uh, a Pentecostal church called Four Square had entered uh, PNG about 1956, experienced rapid growth in the highlands and in the north, and had about a thousand churches in 2003, which is when we went up there. And they, but they had virtually nothing in the south of the country, so they sent this Aussie guy who'd been up there for a couple of years as a missionary to go down to Port Moresby and start a church, which he did uh, in, in 1993 with about 11 people in a cowboy hat and a guitar <laughs> in the Koki markets in PNG. And then it took off like a rocket ship and it got up to about a thousand people and about 90 staff and it was all being run by this guy and his wife. And they're just about dead on their feet.
2: Mm.
0: And so they needed leadership development in a big hurry so we went up to assist with that for the first year year and a half basically i got involved in setting up structures in the church because it had all this all these people and the whole thing 90 staff and they're being run out of a little office with a couple of computers and a couple of people about the size of a laundry so i got the admin side sorted out we've got computers and we've got myob for doing the finances we ended up with about eight or nine office staff just to take care of things there. Um, meanwhile, I put things in place to get Bible college going. And once we started taking in students, it, it went, it grew quite rapidly. Mm. Uh, we had 14 students the first year and then year by year were two or three years later, we're up to about 30 students. And I was sowing into them just because it's passion a passion of mine, the importance of starting new churches, not just looking for a job somewhere in a existing church, but to uh, hear the call of Jesus to go and find the sheep who are still lost out on in the, in the fields. So the students somehow captured something. And this I'm currently involved in doctoral research um, for a, a doctor of education because I want to ask or answer the question educationally, what's the best way to prepare and train church planting pastors in third world or a majority world context. So what happened was we got some funding from America. Uh, every weekend we'd send the students out, we'd put them in bunches of three or four. Mm. Um, we'd give them a guitar and a rice bag and some tea and some sugar, and we got a hold of a vehicle and we'd drop them off at little villages all the way out of Moresby for 60 or 80K and, and leave them are- all weekend.
1: Sorry, these are um, Papua New Guinea These are people? Papua New Guinea yeah.
0: young people in their mm-hmm. 20s. Yeah. And so we, they're being trained during the week. They're in class during the week, learning Bible and theology and so on. Mm-hmm. And then on Friday night, we drop them off at all these villages mm-hmm. and say, all right, we'll pick you up Sunday afternoon, just while you're here, run a youth group, go around and visit people in their homes, pray for the sick, run a kids' program like a Sunday school on Saturday, Avo hold a church service on Sunday might be just the three or four of you in the team, or you might have 10 or 15, but just get, get engaged. And then they'd come back on Sunday. We'd pick them up. They'd write up their reports. We'd hear their stories. And my hunch is that gave their learning so much depth and richness because they kind of had to, how do you do this? And how do you pray for a sick person? And, what mm-hmm. happens if somebody's beating their wife and yeah. So it, the, my feeling is the problem with a lot of education, a lot of training of Christian leaders is it's too abstract. Mm. We've based it on the model of the academy, of the university for the last several hundred years. And it means people are absorbing all this knowledge, but they actually don't know how to lead or run a church. I know my first church, luckily it was mainly young families and nobody died for a few years. And when somebody did die and had to do a funeral, I had no idea.
2: Yeah. I'd,
0: I'd never been shown. I'd never been trained. Had to call the local Church of Christ minister and say, can you help me here? So that's made me think a lot of looking at how Jesus trained his disciples. And it was much more an apprenticeship model rather than an academic model. So he would take them with him, he'd show them what to do, he'd send them out to do it, come back and bring a report. And so it was very much hands-on. Now, I think this is what happened with these guys in PNG because when we started 2003, there were maybe 12 or 15 churches in this whole southern region of four provinces of PNG. Um, And today, a bit more than 10 years later, there's over 150. Wow. So there's been something significant has happened. Part of it is also my colleague, my dear good friend up there, Pastor Margie Goro is the supervisor and he's clearly key. He's kind of like an Apostle Paul to the Papua New Guineans. uh, But he's caught the same vision and he's passionate about church planting. And interestingly, his region is so alive and so fired up that they are now planting churches in some of the older regions that had a lot of churches, but they haven't planted any new ones. They've kind of gone to sleep. Mm-hmm. So he's he's stirring them up, I guess, wow. which is very exciting. I love it.
1: Yeah. And looking at all this from like the cultural perspective, how does the Christianity and the traditional culture of the Papua New Guinean people, how does that kind of work in together? Well, that's,
0: that's another really profound question and quite complex, actually been a lot of discussion, debate, argument about this ranging from the view that says Christianity is a culture destroyer. We shouldn't let missionaries go into new cultures through to Christianity. Christianity has been in many cases the preserver of culture. And in fact, I tend to lean to that second one. Uh, Modernity is is coming into every developing country of the world. Coca-Cola and Shell oil had been there long before. Lots of other influences. So uh, there's, it's a myth to imagine there's some pristine, pure people who have left untouched by modernity would live in happiness and and peace. They've got terrible domestic violence problems. They've got terrible disease problems, (coughs) short lifespans, massive uh, infant mortality rates and deaths in childbirth. (coughs) It's no, it's no paradise. So most of most cultures are longing for the advances of modernity, good medicine, good health care, good uh, education. And in many cases, it's been Christian missionaries who brought that that very thing. <clears throat> and it has been Christian missionaries who have been at the very forefront of cultural anthropology, recording and understanding cultures and particularly recording uh, language and capturing languages that would otherwise have died out. So there's been a massive positive cultural contribution uh, by Christian missionaries uh, through the ages. So that's kind of the overview. But the, the on the ground question is quite an interesting one, because what right does this religion have to prevail over any other religion? Well, we live in a world where most people would acknowledge the right of freedom to choose, so unlike what we see happening in some of the Middle East countries where religion is forced on people, um, as Christians we believe every person has the right to hear at least once the Christian message, and then they're entirely free to accept it or refuse it. Mm. Um, But the Christian message, in my view, is at one level it's quite uncompromising in that Jesus asks to be Lord. He doesn't ask to be one among many or Mm. to be uh, on a sort of playing field of options. His is a a pretty absolute claim with some pretty absolute benefits, you know, like eternal life and belonging to a wonderful community of people called the church. So when Christianity enters uh, societies that have not experienced modernity like PNG, Uh, there's some interesting clashes can occur or some interesting transitions. But I'm amazed at adaptability. My good friend, Pastor Margie Goro, is from the Highlands, which was only made known to the rest of the world in about 1939 by some Australian gold prospectors. And so Pastor Margie's grandfather was was a headhunter and Margie himself was two generations away from the Stone Age. And he fixes cars and works computers and and has got grade two education, but he's a very smart, brilliant man who has adapted to modernity and is using it in positive ways for his people and for his own family. And so uh, I don't think that Christianity is a negative at all in those kinds of settings. It was a rather long answer, sorry, but
1: that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> and you mentioned the Middle East in there as well. You've also been over in, in Lebanon, is that right?
0: Yes, that's true. Can't seem to stay home <laughs> um, in uh, 2011. We came back from Papua New Guinea in 2008, and I was doing a little bit of work around teaching in some of the Christian colleges here and um, doing interim pastor work of taking care of churches that were temporarily without a pastor. And an opportunity or an email came from an old, old uh, college friend, an Aussie guy who actually ended up in Princeton, where we were, and married an American student there. And they then went to the Middle East, where they had been for nearly 30 years as missionaries. And he was working at the Arab Baptist Theological Seminary in Lebanon, and they were coming up for reaccreditation. He had developed, my friend, a whole new, quite innovative curriculum, different way of training students moving in the direction of what I think is the better way to do it. And they needed to have someone document all this for the accreditation authorities to come in. You sent this all points email out, and I didn't delete it immediately, I just left it sitting in my in tray. And about a month later, I said to Leonie, my wife, did, did you send that email from Perry about needing somebody to, to write up all their uh, documentation for this accreditation visit. And she said, yeah. I said, I've been wondering whether maybe we could do that. She said, I've been thinking the same. So we prayed about it, talked to Pastor Richard Green, my senior pastor, and at the end of upshot was we went there for nearly a year, um, living on the campus, living in kind of like a little motel room, which was quite difficult for Leonie because the meals were provided. The room was clean. Mm. She doesn't have to do much except maybe do her washing once a week.
1: Sounds all right. <laughs> but, but
0: it's actually was a it's bit frustrating because she's an yeah. activist. Yeah. And because of the language barrier, the seminary, all the staff spoke very good English. But once you got outside that context, mm. language is a big barrier. Yep. We tried taking Arabic lessons, which is an amazing language, but we didn't get very far cause it was very complex. Yeah. So I completed my work. They received their accreditation, which is, was really... Wonderful, but the interesting thing that's resulted from that is Richard Green came over to visit us while we we're there, and we established some relationships. And out of that, uh, our first Middle Eastern church came. One of the students who was there in the year I was there is now has now planted uh, husband and wife a C3 church in Cairo, most difficult place, uh, and after. About two and a half, three years, i have got about 300 people there. Wow. And it's no picnic by any means. They get mm. quite a lot of opposition. They're reaching out to young men who've been addicted to drugs and alcohol and, and young women who've been caught up in sexual slavery. Mm. And they're seeing these people set free in powerful ways. And uh, But they get some opposition. Uh, last year, we here in Australia bought them a car because they needed a safe way of getting around the city. And uh, it was firebombed and destroyed. And the message was sent to them stop what you're doing, or worse will happen.
2: Oh, wow! Um,
0: but they haven't stopped. So, wow! And uh, we will be going back there in a month. I'm teaching a short term course there, and we're going to meet another couple and an, a single guy, two more possible church planters in the Arab world. So, it's very exciting!
1: Yeah, fantastic. Um, Throughout your life journey so far, has there been a particular passage or story in the Bible which has been particularly significant for you?
0: I would say that my, my prime key scripture, at the moment anyway, has been for a little while now, is Luke 640, where Jesus says, the student, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. And that shapes my educational philosophy toward the apprenticeship model of, of exposing students to teachers who are actual practitioners in the area. So uh, Richard Green and I are working with uh, uh, MAS College or here in Sydney, uh, running an MA, Master of Arts for church planters primarily or pastors. Mm-hmm. And we require that all of the faculty be themselves practitioners and not just academics. Mm. And so that's that's a bit of a, a different way of doing things.
1: Do you think there's a place for that academic study separately or do you think it should always be intertwined? Oh,
0: no! look, I think it depends on the, the field. Okay. So, you know, if it's if it's philosophy, yeah. then sure, a classroom's perfect. But mm. if you want uh, competent pastors, the best way to train them is in exposing them to more experienced competent pastors and bring the theory in as you're doing that. Yeah. My, one of my educational models suspect from, I guess it was the 18th century, 1700s in the U.S. Uh, Presbyterians had no colleges established at that stage because it all just come across from England and uh, a man by the name of, I think it was Gilbert Tennant, or was it William Tennant? It was a father and son, but the Tennant's anyway, was a Presbyterian minister. And he gathered a bunch of a dozen or so young men around him. And in the morning, they'd sit in his house and they'd study theology, Bible, Hebrew, Greek, whatever, all the classical disciplines. And in the afternoons, they would go out with him, home visits, burying the dead, praying for the sick, baptizing babies and whatever. Mm. And out of that grew ultimately Princeton University and Princeton Seminary but I kind of like the early days as the defining model.
1: Great. Can you sum up for us, Ken, what is the core of what you believe, your theology?
0: Well, that's a good question. It's all about Jesus. He has to be first, central, number one. Um, and the Christian life is a growing relationship with him. Uh, that can sometimes be a bit confusing when you first hear that word, you know, have a relationship with Jesus. Well, I know how to have a relationship with my wife or my colleagues at work, but it's actually in a different dimension to that. And so it's, uh, it's a different quality, I guess, of relationship. Um, I think that what Jesus has done on the cross of Calvary and dying for me and for the whole world is probably the most significant event in all of human history. And the greatest thing that I can do for anyone, among all the many things I might be able to do, is to help them enter into that relationship with Jesus. And that's why I'm passionate about church planting. I'm absolutely convinced it's the best form of evangelism under the sun. And I've tried all the various methods and approaches, but if you plant new churches, everything is there. Fellowship is there, teaching is there, worship is there, leadership development is there. The whole range of this wonderful experience of the community of the church is there, if it's a good and a healthy church. So that's what that's what I'm passionate about, it's what I love to do, what I love to encourage other young leaders, men and women, to commit their lives to.
1: Mm. I think it's interesting that you address the term relationship with Jesus, because it is something Christians throw around a lot, but for someone that doesn't have that, they might say, what does that relationship of a different dimension look like? That's right.
0: And, and you know, I've encountered occasionally people who have felt maybe a little oversold, felt a little let down that, well, because the relationship with Jesus is a wonderful thing. It's just, it's a different relationship. And we use metaphors and we use language to try and describe something which in one sense is indescribable, and so you have to use some words, but um, we just need to continually be clarifying. I'm always concerned when we lapse into Christianese and use things like, you know, the blood of Jesus is powerful, or or we're washed in the blood. How how does blood wash anything? It's going to make it (laughs) stained, isn't it? (laughs) So the metaphors, these are all metaphors that are rich and they're very powerful and they're biblical, but they have to be explained. Mm. Otherwise, they can go off in the wrong direction.
1: Mm. And what does that relationship with Jesus look like in your case?
0: It looks like the thing that defines my identity. It looks like the way I set the course of my life, the things I do, uh, the activities I invest myself in, Um, I'm blessed with good health and, you know, I could be retired i guess but i'm not you know still doing stuff and still studying and still learning because you know going back to that experience as a six-year-old or like the wonder of the universe the universe is a wonderful place and there's still lots more things to be discovered so Mm. i'm on a journey with jesus to discover some of them
1: Mm. and what are your hopes and dreams for the future
0: well i guess we want to leave a legacy our our great and daily prayers for our family and our kids and our grandkids that they'd all be in church and following Jesus. That's probably the number one thing we we want to see. Um, And I want to see healthy churches. There are sadly some unhealthy churches around and people have been burned and bruised in churches. And one of the things I love to do, God's given me three opportunities now to work with hurting churches and help bring health back to them because I'm absolutely convinced that the church is meant to be and can be and, and often is um, the community of, of healing and restoration that society desperately needs. So many people are lonely, they're, they're disconnected, they're hurting and if only they knew what resource was just around the corner every Sunday they'd be running in droves potentially. Mm. I don't think we do a very good job sometimes of portraying what really happens in a healthy church because the, the public perception, especially in the last 18 months or so in Australia, is pretty negative because some pretty horrible things that have happened in churches. But that's not right and that's not what should happen.
2: Mm.
1: And is there anything else you'd like to leave us with as a final thought?
0: Well, life is good. God is wonderful. Jesus is the most important person for anyone to discover uh, in their life. And so I'd I'd say to anyone listening, if you are weighing up this whole thing about about getting to know Jesus and follow him, give it a crack, give it a go. (laughs) Go to church, find someone who does and, and explore a little. You might be wonderfully delighted, I reckon. Sparrows and Wildflowers is brought to you by Victory One Media and hosted by Rachel Simpson with artwork by Nicola Gibb.